This is Contra Radio from Contra.spot. Welcome, dear parishioners, to the Sunday Sermon. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the hefty postbag of complaints from regular listeners who rightly scolded me for failing to observe the Sabbath last week. An extra-long sermon now follows. Mea culpa. If you are a regular listener to these sermons, can I suggest you support them in all our work at Patreon forward slash Scott, where you can also find lots of exclusive content. Today's sermon is about the nature of leadership, why it succeeds, and how it fails to reproduce across generations. People like to say things like, Independence isn't about Alex Salmond or Nicholas Sturgeon. A cause is bigger than any one person. And superficially, this sounds very democratic. It's an item of Star Wars social movement wisdom. Princess Leia or whoever dies, but the cause lives on, and the humblest nobody could ultimately replace them. It's the kind of activist advice trunned out by people who think diversity at the Oscars is terribly important. But it's also nonsense. Leaders really do matter. Often, they keep movements alive when no one cares about them. That can be for decades. In periods of ascent, they can be the edge, cutting through the noise of established ideas. Think how inextricably linked a cause like Brexit is with Nigel Farage. He was nothing but a joke for 80% of his political career, which began in complete obscurity in the 1990s. By 2016, he had forced the mighty Conservative Party to concede a referendum and helped win it. By 2019, he was responsible to a great degree in breaking another major wing of the British establishment, the so-called People's Vote movement. We could repeat an analysis of this kind for numerous movements across hundreds of years of history. Since I call myself a socialist, you can assume I know the limitations of this argument. Leaders mean nothing if no one follows them. Just as importantly, if leaders in the wilderness are shouting about something few care about, their words spark no lightning, and they stay in the wilderness. But I think we're about to get an object lesson in just how important political leadership is in a movement. The idea that the incoming generation of SNP politicians represent the same thing as the last one is totally absurd. If Brexit began in the twinkle of Farage's eye, the modern Scottish national movement really began with Alex Salmond. People find both men personally objectionable, and this tends to cloud the appreciation of their achievements. Let's park that for a moment and consider that Salmond performed for the SNP much of what Farage did for Brexit. Salmond has a story he likes to tell about his twilight struggle against the British state. As a young MP in the late 1980s and early 1990s, he would often stay up through the night to catch journalists at their most frenetic and desperate for stories. He would grab an early edition of the London papers and sit in his parliamentary office dialing around, trying to wedge his little Scottish party into the big stories of the day. Much of the time he'd get the knock back. Why would the editor of the Times give a damn about a little no-hope party in northern Labour land, a party and a man few in his London readership had ever heard of? Want to hear what something called the Scottish National Party has to say about fisheries policy? Not particularly, no. Insurgents aren't like other politicians. 
I know what it's like to be on the political margins, but not to reside on the margins because of some stories you were told in childhood about Robert the Bruce. No, really, this is how Salmond has explained his nationalist inspirations. I support Scottish independence, but from a very different political background, so I can't imagine having the phone slammed on me a thousand times at 6am and endeavour to keep going because of that story about Bruce and the spider who kept rebuilding its web. If I can't, do you really think Kate Forbes can? She was only elected in 2016, to a party that had been in power for almost a decade. She took the second job in the government just four years later. It took Salmond the same time to go from joining the tiny federation of student nationalists to being kicked out of the SNP for factional activities as a lay activist. I'm not just saying here what should be obvious, and what has been pointed out by others, that the character-building hardships of an insurgent movement are alien to the new generation. That, with some difficulty, can be remedied. Famously, Chairman Mao's generation of communists worried that their children, dubbed red princes for their cushy lifestyles and entitlement, would fail to live up to their revolution. They were sent to labour in countryside communes to get some calluses on their hands and learn what it feels like to go hungry to bed. Our yellow princes and princesses might not have that option, but they are surely in for a rough time in the next few years, without the protection of Nicola Sturgeon. My point is much more that for Salmond and his generation, independence was their project. They started it all. No, don't bother with guff about some old ILP guy in the 1920s who wanted home rule or something. There were a few misfits who wanted independence donkeys ago, and made little progress. Independence is a very modern movement, very much of the last 10 years, and Salmon's SNP is really a movement of the last 25. It's my view that both Salmon and Sturgeon took their precious idea close to the finish line and then realised they had no idea how to cross it. But a deeper criticism of Scottish nationalism and its failures to deliver independence will have to wait for a future Salmon. My point here is, independence was very real to them, in a way it simply isn't to the current candidates. The problem for the SNP is even worse than that. Not only has the invisible thread of independence snapped, but so too has that of the Scotland that emerged after 2007. Salmon and Sturgeon were not just the architects of their own personal mission, but to a not inconsiderable degree, the country they leave behind. Sturgeon in particular, whilst moving away from the independence project, placed herself at the heart of this new Scotland. In Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, we witness the unwinding of the charismatic leadership of Don Vito Corleone through his sons. Each of his three boys, who he confesses to raising indulgently, embody only a portion of his strength, offset by weakness. Sonny, the heir apparent, is forceful and strong, but without his father's sense of strategy. Fredo is warm and sociable, but weak and needy of affection. Michael is shrewd and decisive, but cold, fatefully incapable of forgiveness. The literary theme of the epigon, the offspring who cannot live up to the example of the forebear, is ancient. It was perhaps smuggled into Coppola's films via psychoanalysis, with its appreciation of how crisis-afflicted personalities can split into their component parts. Social formations and organisations too can unwind in this way. Aspects of a whole, which work together in a given historical moment, can be torn apart in the next. The Godfather charts the collapse of a Sicilian patriarchy 
in the inclement weather of 20th century North America. Vito Corleone manages to balance the respect and fear, love and authority, which is the patriarchal ideal. But it breaks like light through a prism in a society that can no longer accommodate this old social form. I won't abuse this analogy by individually comparing Vito's sons and the three SNP candidates. Hamza Yusuf is Fredo, by the way. Suffice it to say, the package of attributes that carried the SNP hegemon this far has suddenly shattered. Kate Forbes indicates this most clearly. She seems absolutely determined to present the most unacceptable faces of Scotland's capitalist settlement to the public. Her fealty to liberal market economics is hardly shocking. She shares this with Nicola Sturgeon and her rivals. Forbes' problem is that she flaunts it brazenly. For decades, neoliberalism has found success with a slap-and-tickle combination of economic brutality and sugar-paper social liberalism. Forbes was already getting away with militant attacks on the Scottish public sector, and drawing less heat than might be expected, with a programme not covered by Sturgeon's aura of progressivism. In place of the former First Minister's saccharine claims to be placing the interests of women and children first, Forbes has asserted the special rights of business. Having learned nothing from the trust debacle of just months ago, she apparently believes the animal spirits of capitalism can lift Scotland out of its stupor. Forget for a moment that the programme of senile neoliberalism is a broken mechanism. As stated, it remains common ground for most SNP politicians. What's Forbes seeking from her noisy adherents? An attempt to find a way out of the SNP's financial problems by aligning it more explicitly with the ideas of big donors? The party suffers from a lack of them. Are some of the party's former beneficiaries, activist capitalists with conservative leanings, moving in the background? Or perhaps the explanation is simple incompetence. Forbes hails from rural and small business parts where a combination of market banalities and social cuckishness wash, and she imagines this will arrive as a pleasant surprise in the central belt. Whatever the thinking, her self-presentation means a Forbes FM would likely mutilate the SNP's existing voting bloc. Forbes represents the economic liberalism of a party, but snarling with none of the necessary apologies. She does at least seem to have a faction. Though her campaign quickly alienated parliamentary supporters, one can imagine a network of activists, perchance some with similar religious convictions, treading the pavements in the northeast. Ash Reagan's people, meanwhile, have already quit the party. We don't know how many thousands of SNP members, some of them old party veterans, others from the post-2014 influx, have given up since 2018-19, to when internal tensions began to mount. Alex Salmon did the SNP machine a grand favour when he drained the party of dissenting material two years ago. If Reagan represents the campaigning zeal of the nationalist foot soldiers, she may find she's representing a rump. And then there's Yusuf. Never meant to be the Don, but he was available, and Angus Robertson was not. He's left with a friendly facade of the SNP. Happy, clappy and still promising the good times of a centre-left Scotland that never quite arrives. Sturgeon's reputation famously rode through every policy failure and public relations embarrassment, and there were plenty of them. Yusuf's reputation as a bungler, and the absence of his predecessor's media friendliness, means the favourite represents a continuity of the failures without the aura of invincibility. Frankly, none of the candidates look capable of holding the SNP's formidable alliance together.
let's remind ourselves what that alliance was. Off the back of 2014, off the back of 2014, it drew a large portion of former Labour Scotland. We can add to this a traditional nationalist constituency in the North East and a small private army of true believers. In power, the SNP used Holyrood to cement a patronage network around itself, handing out money and access in return for good relations. This strategy, which the SNP merely mastered, the building of patronage in this way is a structural imperative of the devolution mode of government, had welded campaigning outfits in corporate Scotland into a protective beige blob around power. Finally, the riffraff of Scottish public life swarmed in after the 2015 general election. I remember reporting from the SNP conference of that year and being struck by the familiar faces. They were the old Labour student cadres, having traded in their skinny red ties for the SNP's trademark pastel power suits. None of the candidates can appeal to all these constituencies at once. None of them even seem to be trying. Most are now firmly associated with an element of Sturgeon's old Camarilla, Forbes with business in the North East, Reagan with the Independence Hardcore, Yusuf with Civic Scotland. One can imagine, for example, the stampede in the event of a Forbes victory. You can practically hear the third sector marching in unison to Anasawa. Slowly or quickly, this is all coming off the rails. As it does so, many in the extended court of Nicola Sturgeon, by which I mean the court that extended across much of the liberal and leftern hemisphere of Scottish public life, will plead that the magic went with her. They will say that what departed with her was a very real progressive virtue, and this merely exposed the ugliness of the party, even the country, she had been covering for all this time. The truth is Sturgeon is the architect of this dysfunctional family. The signs of her abuses are everywhere in her inheritor's half-baked worldviews, patronage politics, sharp elbows, missing constituencies and total lack of a plan for the national question. Time will reveal just how much damage has been done in an environment where privileges were assumed, meaningful debate forbidden and dissenters tossed aside. The appalling choice presented to us by the candidates is simply the inarticulate version of the programme Sturgeon enforced. Now it is turning against itself in the twilight of SNP hegemony. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott.com.